and welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sunderland and Talking Migration is supported by the Migration Research Group and the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield. At the end of last year, 164 states adopted a global compact for safe, orderly and regular migration. It sets out 23 objectives for achieving this kind of migration. And some hope that this compact will strengthen migrants' rights, however others worry that it will undermine state sovereignty and several states pulled out out of this concern. So this is what we're here to discuss today and with me I have Elspeth Guild, who's Professor of Law at Queen Mary University of London and Tugba Basaran, who's Senior Research Associate at the Centre for Global Human Movement at the University of Cambridge. They have collected a series of blog posts that analysed the final draft of the compact, which was then published as a report by the Refugee Law Initiative. And they joined me to try to explain what the compact is. Uh, and to start, uh, Tugba Basaran will summarise how it came about uh, and, and what it entails. Let me start out with um, the New York Declaration on Refugees and Migrants. Um, that was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in September 2016, and it initiated a process towards two compacts, the Global Compact for Refugees and the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration, as it's called. Um, we probably will just shorten it up right now into the Global Compact for Migration. Um, and this UN Global Compact for Migration was adopted on the 10th of December, so a few weeks ago only, in, in Marrakesh, and it was endorsed uh, by the General Assembly on the 19th of December, and there were 152 votes in favour, 12 abstentions and 5 votes against it. Um, the compacts are legally non-binding agreements, and uh, this is going to be rather crucial for everything that we say afterwards, and everything that has been said so far. Um, they lay out a set of principles, objectives and partnerships in generic terms for the governance um, of refugees and migrants. And we will focus here just on the Global Compact on Migration. But it is essentially promoted as the first intergovernmental agreement on migration, even though it is called the cooperative framework, to be more precise. And what it proposes is it proposes a holistic common approach to cover all dimensions of international migration. So it is rather broad. Um, what is maybe important to keep in mind is um, while the global compact on migration is not really legally binding, um, the human rights obligation of states which underpin the global compact on migration are and um, this has led to a number of frictions also in the intergovernmental negotiation processes, um, which explains potentially why some states have declined to sign the Global Compact on Migration. Yeah, because that was going to be my, uh, my next question. There's been, uh, there's been a bit of critique and some states not wanting to sign, and they seem to be worried about state sovereignty. So um, would you, um, could you expand a bit on that? Or Elspeth, perhaps. Do you want me to? Elspeth, do you want to go ahead? <laughs> or... I'll go ahead. Uh, yes, the um, the resistance to the Global Compact began in um, December 2017 at the conference which ended 
the stock-taking um, year of the Global Compact and moved into the intergovernmental negotiations among states when the United States announced that it would not participate in the Global Compact on Migration. It said at that time it would participate in the Global Compact on Refugees, but by the time we got to December 2018, a year on, it pulled out of both. Uh, there was then a fairly quiet period except in the early spring of 2018, the Hungarian prime minister said that Hungary would not participate in the global compact, expressing similarly to the United States, concerns about state sovereignty, sovereign control over borders. The compact does not actually state that border control is a shared responsibility, but it does focus on the shared responsibility, and that language does come from the, um, the uh, development goals on the basis of which the, the compact was uh, prepared. Then we had a very odd period in September, October, November 2018, when according to an article in the um, reputable journal Politico, they did an inquiry into how social media demonized the global compact migration. And uh, in a very concerted campaign, primarily in Europe, stated that the global compact created a right to migrate, which of course, as a non-legally binding uh, cooperative framework of states, is not actually the case. The result of that was that a number of Governments in Europe, and it was primarily in Europe, though you also have Australia and Israel, which decide they will have nothing further to do with the compact, decide that they won't sign up on the basis that this will impede their sovereign control over migration and border controls. We found this a rather odd and disingenuous argument there are a number of analysts, including ourselves, who take the view that notwithstanding the fact that these states had signed up to UN human rights conventions, which apply equally to citizens and to migrants, uh, there was perhaps a desire to resile from their commitments under UN human rights um, conventions to apply the same standards to migrants as to citizens and they use the occasion of the global compact migration to express their dissatisfaction with ideas about equality, um, equal treatment, uh, the right of families to live together, uh, the right of all persons who are workers to have equal treatment in working conditions, etc. So would you say that um, actually these rights that are, um, that are enforced or, or underlined in the compact are rights that states already have to follow but they don't and then by joining the compact they, they sort of fear that they would actually have to enforce them? Well, I think that there are quite a number of states which have begun, well, which use an anti-migrant rhetoric as a certain kind of organizing principle around um, mobilization of their own people. 
the idea that human rights obligations are in fact and have been created after the Second World War to place a limit on constitutional powers to demonize parts of societies is a fact of life. And it's a truth about the development of international human rights. Uh, these set a floor below which no state can go. When states, oppressive states, seek to uh, undermine the human rights of parts of their population, the whole purpose of human rights is to provide that threshold below which those states cannot go if they have signed up to the international commitments. And if they don't want to comply with those commitments, then what they should do is they should denounce the international commitment, which they have. So if Hungary does not want to apply uh, the uh, international covenant on civil and political rights, the equal treatment rights there to migrants, what it should do is denounce its signature of the international convention, the international covenant on civil and political rights and withdraw from that obligation, that human rights obligation. And that is always open to states. But it would seem that the states which did not want to sign up to the Global Compact did not want to take this rather dramatic step of saying, we do not deliver human rights in our territory. We no longer want to be bound by human rights, such as the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Instead, they sought to attack a cooperative framework for states around a, an issue which is obviously transnational, which is obviously of international consequence because migrants don't come from nowhere, they're all citizens of somewhere, and they go somewhere else where they're not citizens. And they sought to use the compact as a venue in which to express their wish to resile from the position that human rights are applicable to all persons. I guess, um, just to be sort of devil's advocate, that I guess some um, human rights are quite, uh, um, as they are expressed in, in the um, uh, UN conventions, perhaps some people would argue that they're quite far-reaching, they're quite sort of a lot broader than, um, than what a lot of people would consider to be sort of fundamental rights. So if you mention something like family uh, rights to family, then a lot of countries obviously have quite strict migration rules for family um, unification, uh, etc. So is it that states fear that they would actually have to apply quite a broad spectrum of rights um, and that they would have to, I don't know, perhaps revise quite substantially these migration laws that they feel like so far they've had sovereignty over? Well, the um, international human rights law is adjudicated by the treaty bodies which are established under the conventions to give a correct interpretation to the conventions. And in, uh, in those cases where states have accepted um, the jurisdiction of the treaty bodies in respect of complaints by individuals, so they're sufficiently confident about their capacity to deliver human rights generally, we see that um, the treaty bodies have recognized interests of states in, for instance, um, areas around family reunification. Uh, 
uh, around looking at what are legitimate restrictions and what are not legitimate restrictions. And if states don't like that, then they have to withdraw from the Human Rights Convention. They can't do, use the, the covenant, which isn't even legally binding, as a way to say, well, we don't want this to apply to foreigners. They have to, they have to withdraw from the convention itself. Yeah. So my next question was going to be then, is the compact actually going to lead to better protection of, of migrants' human rights? I guess if it doesn't actually add anything to existing legislation, perhaps that's not the case. Or are you more optimistic? Do <laughs> you want to do that or do you want me to pick it up? Um, sure, um, I can start out. Um, whether, whether it will effectively lead to better protection of uh, migrants' human rights um, depends upon whether it will be properly implemented. Um, that's what we've been arguing. So currently, um, while the compact re-articulates the human rights at its core, it also has uh, a number of shortcomings. Um, in the sense that it tolerates some state practices that render migrants uh, vulnerable. For example, um, in the course of the negotiations, references, all references to firewalls have been deleted. Um, another controversial point where a work permits tied to one employer, and uh, this has been retained after lengthy debates. So, um, sorry. To interrupt you, can I just ask, uh, what's the what's the firewall refer to? Uh, firewalls refer to due to the um, fear of being reported uh, to immigration enforcement. Um, irregular migrants um, may um, not go to doctors or report oh, yeah. crimes yeah, yeah. or um, go to the police. Um, possibly uh, take their children out of school. Um, so the firewalls are referring to the um, distinction between essential service providers in, in, in society and immigration enforcement. And these are particularly relevant for irregular migrants. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And so um, whether the compact effectively contributes to better protection of human rights um, will, we think, depend upon this this years to come, um, the implementation and the review processes. And currently there is a menu of possible actions which states can take to implement the objectives. Um, and it will depend whether uh, the human rights commitment are taken seriously in this process, in the implementation and the review process. Um, whether the compact will lead to the better protection of migrants' human rights. So you discuss plenty of issues um, in your report, obviously, because the compact uh, uh, covers a lot of issues. Uh, so one thing that I was going to ask you about was the economic issues, such as transfer of remittances and um, the portability of social security entitlements. So do you think you could explain what changes to domestic policies that the compact might entail in this regard and what that might mean for the migrant workers and for host and send-in countries? Right. Well, where we're starting out from is that the Global Compact on Migration uh, puts an emphasis on remittances for good reasons and remittance transfers. Um, what needs to be done, though, is uh, to put that into the broader context of the cost of migration. 
and we have been dealing with this uh, in, 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 in the publication on, on the migrant premium and the cost of working abroad, uh, where we're looking at the costs borne by migrants throughout the migration cycle. And um, what we believe that the compact should do is to look at the full cost cycle from a migrant's perspective. Um, as the migrants uh, relinquish a significant share of their um, foreign earnings during the migration cycle, um, recruitment costs, but also upfront, uh, upfront costs for recruitment, differentials, wage and working conditions, um, social conditions, as well as return costs. And this is also where um, the portability of social, social security entitlements comes in. Um, hence, it is more leading it further than what the compact is proposing right now um, around the idea uh, around around the um, starting from the migrant worker to understand what needs to be tackled on a global level is there any is there anything here that might benefit either the migrant or the host or sending countries that you could see as an actual um, result or consequence of the compact Directly off the compact, um, I think I think the the compact has a whole menu of options, and it brings in there also the development issues, uh, cost issues, social security issues, etc. But uh, I do not see how it would directly affect domestic policies. No, um, because this is not something which the compact really enforces or promotes. But the compact wouldn't be able to remove any of these obstacles or improve um, any of these conditions that might make economic benefits um, better unless uh, individual states choose to do so. The compact provides a cooperative framework and it expresses the political will of the states to see migration as a common interest. So to look for ways in which to achieve the better management of migration, to achieve the objectives of, of course, human rights protection, but also development, also gender equality, and the whole front end of the compact expresses the, the big ideals that the compact is seeking. The, to put this in the context of a cooperative framework, means that these are negotiated objectives of states. The states which voted against, such as the United States, said that they did not want to discuss with anyone migration. They wanted to make their own decisions. They never wanted, they do not want to consider that migration is in the interests of both uh, the states of origin and the states of destination. And they forget that Americans are among the largest nationality of migrants around the world. Uh, and by failing to recognize that their citizens are also migrants when they grow go abroad, they lose the opportunity to enter into a cooperative framework to improve the conditions for everyone who moves. But what do you think are the most significant aspects of the contact, for example, in terms of how it departs from current migration governance or how it might improve life for migrant workers? What is probably the most significant as one of the most significant aspects of the compact is um, 
not necessarily what is written already in the compact, what it says in terms of content, but also what is unsaid um, or implied. Uh, for example, um, in terms of the global infrastructure on migration that it proposes and supports, uh, when we look at the word compact itself, um, what it brings to the table is more than the states and more than an intergovernmental uh, cooperation, but a cooperation and partnerships with a wide range of non-state institutions and stakeholders. Um, in paragraph 44, this is explored further by saying, uh, we will implement the Global Compact in cooperation and partnership with migrants, civil society, migrant and diaspora organizations, faith-based organizations, local authorities and communities, the private sector, trade unions, parliamentarians, national human rights institutions, academia, the media, uh, and other relevant stakeholders. Um, it also seeks to bring together efforts from global, regional, national, and local levels uh, into a coherent, under the auspices of the United Nations, in a coherent system. This is Clara interrupting just to say that we lost Tugba's connection here for a little while, so Elspeth will carry on on this topic. I think that among the most uh, promising of the provisions in the Global Compact are those uh, relating to really enforcing and giving effect to the rights of the child, building in the gender dimension of equality into migration, and trying to limit the coercive aspects of migration, in particular detention of migrants. And I think those are among the most promising of the areas for a cooperative framework among states which is likely to give rise to the improvement of the conditions for migrants and to stop the terrible waste of money that some states invest in detention of migrants, which is very expensive for the states with very little in way of results. I think also the commitment to engaging all levels of government in particular local government, as Tukpa has mentioned, is tremendously important because, of course, migrants bring the greatest benefits to the local communities where they work. And it's those local communities which have the greatest interest to ensure that migration is a success for both those who arrive and for those who live there. And I think that recognition is tremendously important. I think among the more, the least likely areas of the compact to deliver a tremendous amount of obvious results are the calls for diasporas to invest. And I think that investment by companies and by individuals internationally is something which is not regulated by states. It is something which companies and individuals uh, make economic choices about whether or not to invest and where to invest and how to invest. And the suggestion in the compact that somehow states should become involved in coercing diasporas, however you define them, because of course most 
people who might be considered diaspora members are also citizens of the state where they live uh, is perhaps uh, a bit of a pie-in-the-sky approach. And is there anything hopeful about the compact? Do you think it represents a step forward? I think that the global compact on migration represents an enormous step forward in terms of states recognizing the benefits of migration and that their citizens are both migrants and citizens. The difference only depends on which side of a border they are and they are entitled to respect and dignity wherever they are in the world. And that was all for this time. You can find the link to the report in the episode description of the podcast. And I will also post it on our Twitter account, which is at TalkingLeak. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.